Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hello listeners and welcome to the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Aaron, and with me as always is my best friend and, dare I say it, navigator, Patch. Ahoy, maybe? No, that doesn't work. Never mind. This isn't one of those. Navigator is a sailor term, I would say, a seamanship term. It's definitely prevalent on a ship. Like, there is a navigator on a ship. And so, just like on a spaceship. (laughs) Uh, uh, Then Space Ahoy, I guess. Space (laughs) Ahoy. Space Ahoy. Ahoy. That makes me want to go watch Space Ghost now. Like, I feel like that's something Space (laughs) Ghost would say. Anyway. This week, we are switching gears from the heavy philosophical, religious, and science talk of last week's excellent contact episode to just spend a bit of time reminiscing about a childhood favorite of ours. And with that said, it's time to take flight. We are just going to dig right into this. There are no promises for this to be a deep and incredibly thematic exploration of the film because we just love it, and it's not a super deep movie. But it's a lot of fun. And you know what? It's our Christmas episode, essentially. Not our Christmas Christmas episode, because we're going to do Wonder Woman. But this one's kind of like a, a throwback for us, if you will. And hopefully some of you will have the same feelings about this movie and enjoy this conversation. With that said, Patrick, what is your one more takeaway? Well, I was going to say Sarah Jessica Parker, but that's three words. And so I um, told you you could go like SJP. You know, we could. Yeah, like... but I don't want to cheat. I know you accuse me sometimes of having two words for my one word takeaway. And since it's Christmas, I wanted to keep things pretty honest. Fair. So the word that I chose was ahead. And really, there's nothing a lot to this word. It's really, I, I think, looking at this movie as a kid and even looking back on it, it feels like it's kind of ahead of its time in terms of the plot itself. I was pretty surprised at how this could play well in today's market but other than that i think i about the ship and going ahead you know that first class maneuver that it does which is always a favorite of mine so ahead is my one word i told you to keep it short folks he really (laughs) i put in the notes navigator so i take keep these short and he was like i'm gonna do exactly he's (laughs) complying which is my word compliance is my one more takeaway you know i told my kids that while we were watching this the other night and they had already seen it by the way once before but we were rewatching it together so i told them i was like from now on whenever i give you an instruction i expect you to do the thing and say compliance and i like it they refused and (laughs) i like that too (laughs) they uh they refused quite demonstratively actually (laughs) were i mean i don't even think that they're okay with doing the thing that i instruct them to do part to be honest much less saying compliance but it really is that's what happens when they become teenagers maybe that's what just happens all throughout life actually thinking back (laughs) (laughs) is there really ever a time that they do what you say uh kind of like david you know who doesn't do what the adults say anyway compliance is my word because it is the word that i associate with this movie the most like above and beyond all it was such a funny word to use and i think it's a word that not a lot of children utilize in their typical vocabulary and yet this is a very much tailored to kids family adventure movie and so when you're watching this as a young child it sort of sounds like the kind of 
neat, complex word that you latch onto because you're not used to it. It's fancy and it's something that is, you know, adult and above you. It's and techni- so you, it's, it's technical. technical. That's a great term for it. Yeah. And so I remember latching onto that word as I don't know when this came out, like 83, probably a five-year-old when I watched it for the first time or something. And over the course of six, we were six. Yeah, I guess we were uh, over the course of many, many, many viewings since then. It just always stuck out. And I think that part of the greatness of the storytelling in this is you know, using a word like that. But it's the repetitiveness of the word and the way in which it gets repeated and used throughout the story and the dialogue over and over um, it gets said with different tone and, and inflections and kind of different, not necessarily different meanings, but there are subtleties and nuance to the ways in which it is being used at different times by Max. And so for me, that's just kind of my big one word takeaway for this movie. And I like have no problem with that because I can't think of another movie that makes me think about compliance. Well, in that way, I would say compliance. I would agree. Perfect. Well, this is our spoiler warning. If you have not seen Fly the Navigator, it's on Disney Plus, so you can, because we know you all have Disney Plus, right? <laughs> of course you do. The overlords demand it. Uh, seriously, check this one out. Watch it with your kids. I mean, it is as family-friendly as family-friendly movies come for the most part. It's a little, a little creepy. We're going to talk about that in the early goings. A little more than I remembered, honestly. A little spooky. But once it gets into its second half, it is just family adventure fun and great movie to sit down and as patrick said we both would agree that it holds up really well today and that's kind of shocking honestly because some of these movies we'll go back to and not so much but this one does and so if you haven't seen it you'll still enjoy it i think if you watch it today my daughter when she watched it for the first time a couple years ago and for like literally it was during the two months that she used letterbox i found out and she had given it five stars. She absolutely loves it. And so if that tells you anything, you know, take that for what you will. Go watch it and then come back and listen to this conversation. Okay, before we talk about it in more detail, I want to get to a touch point for our memory on this one. Did you grow up watching this as a kid as much as I did? I just mentioned I've seen it literally countless number of times. Um, and I kind of wanted to start with that question I was getting at is why do you think that some of these childhood favorites from this era hold up for future generations like it did with Ashlyn and my kids versus maybe not so much? And I would throw this out there with a specific comparison that for me, The Last Starfighter is a movie that I remember very fondly. And you and I both have talked about this. We we remember lots of it. We can quote a specific speech from it. There's a character in it that I adore, a side character, kind of like a Max. And yet when I rewatch it, there are parts of that movie that I'm not quite as invested in. Whereas if I watched Fly the Navigator, it was a pure 90 minute, just streamlined flick that I never feel a dip in my attention span. And so I would say like The Last Starfighter, it's kind of got this little bit of a goofiness to it that has been done better in different films with better CGI since then. And so my kids can't really connect to it in the same way as they do something like Fly the Navigator. So I wondered what that 
was like for you? Like, what do you think the reasons are for that? Yeah, to answer your question first, I was an an addict when it came to this movie. This was a regular pop the Vajas into the VCR. What's a Vajas? That's what I call VHS. Oh, (laughs) sorry. I thought that was like some sort of like early 1980s monster energy drink or something that I didn't remember. It's like K. Roger for Kroger or Target. You know, it's the way we kind of alternate words. But I watched this as much as I could. And it was a favorite, favorite, favorite. I remember vividly always watching that introduction and having a dog now. It's fantastic. Even though my dogs don't do what those dogs were doing. I would always think that it's such a great thing to open up a movie that is sci-fi with this kind of UFO-like intro where you're like, what is that? And then you see a dog flying into the shot and you're like, oh, okay. So that's kind of fun. I think for me, when I look at these movies, and I would probably put it in the same category as E.T. and even The Last Starfighter to an extent, but I think movies like this or Goonies, they center around young kids. These aren't like older teenagers, 16, 17 years old. These are young kids, 9, 10, 11 years old. And I think that we all have experienced childhood in general. And when you wrap something up as family friendly, I don't know that I would consider Goonies family friendly because there is a huge amount of language in it, but I digress. Movies like Flight of the Navigator have two things going for them. They have that centralized childlike or child protagonist at the center of their story and there's fun interaction with an alien of some kind even if you look at the last starfighter same kind of thing human in this case a teenager young adult gets recruited by the star league to defend the frontier against Zur in the Kodan armada in this case you have this kid named david who is thrown into this world and he has this amazing interaction with this ai And while that was probably light years ahead of its time in terms of storytelling, I think it was also something that's familiar because as kids, we imagine these things. We imagine having these relationships. When we play with our Transformers and our G.I. Joes, we are putting the voices to the characters as we're playing with them. I know when I had G.I. Joes and I was playing with my brother, even when I was playing with some of my other elementary school friends, we would make the voices and it would be based off of a TV show. But there would always be a centralized like human figure at the center of all that, not necessarily when we were playing, but the shows that we liked always had a human figure. And more often, we gravitated towards the ones that had a kid as the centralized figure. Like even the TV show ALF, I liked a lot because it centered around an alien, but it was around a family. And so when I look at Flight of the Navigator, I think that any kid, any young preteen or even right at the teenage years can absorb and enjoy a movie like this because of the fact that it feels timeless it's something that they've imagined maybe not what david has imagined or what the filmmakers imagined as the ship being like and this adventure actually happening but more often than not it's about the fact that imagination exists and i think that that's what this movie has going for it is it invites imagination it invites that really cool sense of hey, how cool would it be if I actually got a chance to fly in a spaceship? I don't know that any kid wouldn't love doing that. Not that every kid has imagined that, but I think that a lot of kids think about those kinds of adventures, and Flight of the Navigator really wraps that up for them in a nice, neat way. Yeah, I would agree. And I also think that there is 
a really great performance here. And it feels strange to say that sometimes about a child performance that on the surface might come off as very simple and not a lot to it. But there is a level here of realism that David is able to show us that doesn't lean into the overly dramatized characterization that we are sometimes used to. He is starting to grow up. He's, you know, got an interest in girls now. He has a naivety about him. He gets worried. He gets angry, but he doesn't overdo the acting. He feels like supernatural to me, not supernatural as in like (laughs) some sort of being, but very much a natural reaction to his situation. And he just wants to get home and he questions things. He learns from his mistakes and adjusts and realizes that family is important, etc., and wants to change and, and treat people in a different way. And I just get this sense from him that he is easy to relate to for children because they can see themselves reacting to the situations that he is in the same way that he does. And sometimes when we watch movies like this where kids are involved and they're family-friendly adventure stories, they're just really played up kind of in a hammy way, I think, that takes us out of the realism. It makes us laugh maybe some more. But this movie doesn't do that. It's not super funny until the second half. And even the the humor that comes from the movie is not from David trying to be funny. You know what I mean? Like he's a character that is just a normal kid just trying to get home. And that's something that's very relatable. Well, I think what you said is very important is that he doesn't lose that throughout the course of the story. His end game is to get home. He never flips and says, you know what? This whole navigator thing would be kind of cool. I want to keep doing that. He's myopically focused on this thing, which allows that agency to become more realistic. If we're talking about a kid that gets abducted and goes into the future, I'm asking myself, how would I react? Especially if I see this really cool spaceship that I now get to fly. Would I ever have a conflict? Absolutely not. Because if I'm that tied to my family, despite how cool this is and all these different things, I'm still scared out of my brain that I want to be able to get home. And I think that's what makes his character effective and relatable is that He's connected to something that we all connect with. I would love to fly around in a spaceship, but I'm more connected to being close to my family. Like that's something that we can all relate to. We want to be back home at some point. And I like that the theme of that gets sort of interpreted, reinterpreted and played throughout the whole story and it doesn't get lost. Absolutely. And the first half of the film. So the first half is like I said, pretty creepy at times, more so than I remembered. It's a sci-fi mystery. And I actually have such a strong memory of everything with Max once David is in this ship and able to start talking to Max and interacting with him that I'd forgotten how much of the movie was set up for that to happen. So he you know, goes off into the woods. He's treating his little brother like crap. They're having a typical, like, 
bantering and, and, you know, joking with each other, making fun of each other back and forth. And he disappears. And then he comes back. And it feels, again, pretty realistic to where he's poked. He's prodded for information. He's whisked, the part that maybe not so realistic, he's whisked away by NASA, who apparently has all kinds of authority in this world, and uh, is kept away from his family, who have obviously aged eight years and are very much in a different place at this point. And he's trying to figure this out. It feels, the first half of this movie, Patrick, like a Twilight Zone episode. Uh, it really does, like a good one. And I wondered, like, other than the Twilight Zone, did you pick up on any homages to this, maybe, from movies that have come after it? Um, or even movies that this came after, so ones that came before? And, and how does it stack up for you when it comes to the science and the time travel and the government interaction in an, with an alien species that they don't know the motives of and just all of these. It's pretty complex, to be honest. Like I was a little surprised at there's a lot going on here. And yet for a kid's adventure movie, it doesn't dive deep into it. it keeps it on the surface. We play with some of this stuff, but we don't get real, real serious and get weighed down to the point of needing to explain all of the things, which I personally enjoyed. But yeah, from, from a, sci-fi lovers perspective like we are how did those aspects of the movie play for you now as an adult i thought they were great man i really thought they were great this is one of the few movies that i get to watch with other people not that i single this one out but this is that was kind of a perfect storm i was in texas this weekend with my family and extended family and one of my nephews is a huge movie guy and so at some point i, I kid you not before we sat down to watch this, he was like, um, Uncle Patch, do you think, and this, he's like 12 years old or 10 years old, and he says, do you think I could be on your podcast someday? And I was like, sure, why not? You know, <laughs> just, we'll bring you on to talk. But, uh, and he definitely talks, especially during the movie, which we had to tell him to shush a few times. So um, I was watching this with him and with my son. And on a personal level, I absolutely love sharing this with my boy because Obviously, this one is a has a special place in my heart, nostalgic. But here's what I noticed, Aaron. Even before we get the exposition about what's happened to David, because we kind of get thrown in, like you mentioned, he time travels so quickly. My son actually picked up before all that got explained that he got sent into the future. I have no idea why. Maybe I didn't pick up on something, or maybe he did. But that tells me two things. One, my son is incredibly smart, which I have no problem admitting and or the fact that the movie does a really great job of allowing you to pick up on those things without over explaining by giving you these context clues. And when I look at that, that complexity really surprised me, as I mentioned in my one word takeaway, because that is a lot. In fact, Aaron, you mentioned the back half of the movie being what's in your brain. Mostly the front half is what I remember more than anything else. And not just because of Sarah Jessica Parker, although I'll admit that that was definitely a signpost for me, but the fact that we got the brain scan interview part, I remember that vividly where he's talking and what's being shown on the computer screen is something completely different. Like when he says, I don't know where Phelan is, and it's like, it's right here. Those things I remember vividly. And I think that they absolutely influenced other sci-fi films going forward about you know, what it meant to have somebody, some 
AI or some creature that has taken over your brain where you may not realize it, but you're actually carrying data. You're actually carrying these things that are important. And in a lot of ways, while that did carry forward in other movies in the future, it's also feeling very fresh. I don't know that I've seen a lot of that since then. Little bits and pieces of that, I think, play out in things like The Matrix or other sci-fi things where you have the human brain being a conduit for something else. But as you mentioned, I like that Flight of the Navigator doesn't double down on the sci-fi-ishness, that it doesn't sacrifice action-adventure for the sake of trying to over-explain because it knows who his audience is. I watched this, you watched this when you were seven years old. That was who the audience was supposed to be. And I think for adults, what we pick up on is, man, where's Phelan? I'd love to see a whole movie about Phelan. And what about these other creatures that David gets to meet? That's what I thought was really cool is that we get this whole backstory that we don't know anything about that makes me want to know more about these creatures. I want to know more about the the character of Max. And, you know, does he adapt like he does with David to these other creatures? Or is he just simply this eyeball floating in this amazing spaceship? So as an adult, I think it doesn't just hold up. I think it supersedes, you know, a lot of the what I would call simple sci-fi movies that we see today, where you have 90 minutes, action adventure, sci-fi peppered throughout to give you just enough wow that you're not overly thinking, but you're not distracted by it either. I think it's a lack of danger. There is a lower stakes of danger when it comes to this movie. There's no lasers being shot around the screen. There's no military force that is legitimately attacking a thing or an invasion that is being prevented. It is uplifting. It it, it starts off kind of scary, to be honest, but then it turns into something that is able to for us to to kind of get wide-eyed and be like this is extraordinary and amazing and neat and fascinating to us and it triggers this response to where we want to see more and we we're excited about the future instead of afraid of it and there's not a lot of movies that do that anymore i don't think <laughs> you know it just it's not the way narratives are done and we I think resonate with that really deeply still because we miss it so much and because it's not a familiar type of story that we see. It does definitely pay homage. I mentioned Twilight Zone. It feels like a Twilight Zone episode. Maybe backwards, actually. feels like a Twilight Zone playing backwards because the mystery is up front and then it, it's all fine and dandy by the end. But the E.T. and Close Encounters of the Third Kind are definitely ones that stick out to me. Uh, obviously, Max, kind of the E.T. character in this, and then Close Encounters, just the way that they the ship shows up out of nowhere. I love the moment <laughs> where NASA's going to see the ship at the very beginning, and they're like, how are we supposed to get this back to you know Cape Canaveral or wherever they're going? And the dude's like, oh, and it's fine. And he's like, no, 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 no. And he like just touches it and pushes it forward and it like moves. That's That feels like a very, again, realistic thing where somebody would be like, no, 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 don't touch it. But just some random dude's like, no, it's fine. It's cool. It's like a freaking alien spaceship. I think that the depiction of the robot 
cart <laughs> that comes with Sarah Jessica Parker is adorable. The whole part about the robot and him escaping, I'm I'm thinking about Short Circuit the entire time that I'm watching that whole part play out where he's stuck in NASA and then escaping NASA and getting out to be free. It, it's just very reminiscent of what happens in Short Circuit. Yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna say Short Circuit is one of these movies that I think would also be accessible to a younger audience even today. Even though you don't have a kid, the robot himself, number five, is a kid because he's learning new things. And I think that it's so appealing. And to put that in an AI, you get sort of that separation in Flight of the Navigator where you have really both. You have, you have Max who is learning how to be more (laughs) relatable to David either by accident or by design. And that's what I think is really appealing is their relationship. David and Max's relationship is, is one of those things. Yeah, it is. I mean, Source Circuit does have lasers, so it's, <laughs> what, no, he, I, yeah. I agree. Source Circuit's really good. Uh, and a great, a great comparison. Like, that's true. He does. He takes with, and of his own agency. He, he, is yes. Him. yes. Um, but like there's light speed theory being thrown around and explained in this one. And it's not too much. There's a lot of, I don't know. It it just, it feels kind of like Tron to me at points with the way that certain brains are being, you know, you know, used. He's in a program essentially. I don't know. It's the same similar kind of tone is what I'm getting at from an adventure movie. But I think that the science is kind of perfectly in there. I, I think that it's not overdone. I think that in lieu of having something that is a serious threat, making the NASA folks a little bit as your somewhat kind of silly villains in this, they don't do anything that is, you know, illegal per se or just absolutely hurtful, but they do things that are against what we would want from a family perspective. We wouldn't want a kid to be taken away from his family. We would want him to be able to go back home and just live with his parents eight years and nobody to care. But that's not what would happen. I think that maybe they kind of ciphered the NASA characters down to, per, you know, to, to represent the entire government entity of what, how this would, the establishment quote unquote would deal with a situation like this. And for me, that really works here um, perfectly because it's a kid's movie. I would say that it does. And I don't see NASA as the villain per se because of the fact that we don't get enough of, first of all, we don't get military involvement necessarily. We get some choppers here and there, but we don't get guns. We don't get any kind of anything when it comes to weaponized reactions to anything. The ship itself is benevolent. It's simply fast (laughs) and it's a shapeshifter. I mean, the shape itself is very much a tame type of thing. It doesn't look dangerous at all. It looks elegant. And when you look at NASA, they're looking for answers. And I think they represent in a soft way what science is, just the search for answers. And the while they go about it probably in ways that we don't agree with as human beings because family comes first, I think that the movie allows us to give a little bit of forgiveness to them in understanding that they're trying to find out the answers just like David is where David is just, he just wants to get home and nobody can fault him for that. But you've got at one point, the, the lead scientist said, great, 
when when they lose the ship and lose him, like great, the two most amazing discoveries in the world are now lost. And so I'm like, yeah, I'd probably feel bad too. Like really, you're just on your watch. You lost this great ship and this kid who can talk to it with his brain. But I think that when you when you watch it, I never, for good reasons, saw NASA as being anything but more of kind of a, a an aggressive curiosity as far as the antagonist really more as a supporting character that was just trying to figure something out and was doing what they understood maybe because they knew that they may not have the ship very long. They may not have David very long. In fact, I believe when he said 48 hours tops, he's when he says we're going to need longer than 48 hours. I don't think he was like, I think he was really like, man, I don't want to have to do this, but we're not anywhere closer than we were two days ago. Well, and when they show up at the end of the film, when David lands at his parents' house and comes out, you know, presumably to go in and they're like, you know, step away from the ship, David, step away. They don't have any context, so they're acting naturally. They're acting defensively because, I mean, every other known freaking movie for the most part, not E.T., but majority of movies, like, an alien presence is going to be some sort of antagonizing force. It's going to be, you know, confrontational in some way. So they are acting safely and carefully, telling him to move away, because they don't know. For all they know, the ship stole David. They're, it's controlling his head. How do they have any idea what its intentions are? You know what I mean? It's not tried to communicate with them and then been, you know, just, just uh, thrown off and discarded. It's not like a lot of times where the alien will be like, no, I'm friendly. And the people will be like, I don't believe you. I'm going to hate you anyway. This alien never had a chance to explain that to the NASA folks and scientists in the government. So for all they know, it could be very dangerous. And so it's just, it feels to me like you're right. Like everybody is acting in the way that they would if this occurred. Speaking of the ship, you mentioned how cool it is when it does that maneuver the first time when it transitions from a big bubble into the sleek, like fast version yeah the first first class class maneuver when it transitions into like the f1 version of itself (laughs) right well we're doing a top five episode for our patrons this month on the top five spaceships and you know at the risk of going ahead and spoiling one of them i I don't you don't have to say if it's going to be on your list but i want to talk about it a minute is it in consideration for you and what makes it super cool and memorable for you it's definitely in contention and I think for me, if I could pick one thing out, because I don't want to go into too much in case this does make my list, but I will say it's got a lot of, it reminds me of the Millennium Falcon in terms of having these secret compartments, these, you're looking around and you see things kind of pop up, the seat that David sits in comes out of nowhere, the hidden compartment where all the creatures are. I mean, I feel like there's so much more to the ship because it can shapeshift from a clamshell to this sleek, like cool looking straight on spaceship. I feel like there's a lot more to it that we don't see because we, you know, it's eighties and it's special effects and there's a limited budget, but I love the unknown about it. I love the fact that there are these things in it. You could look around and be like, I'll bet there's something back there. Or I'll bet there's something underneath here. And what else is max hiding or what else, you know, where's the galley? Is there a galley? Is this meant for people or is this meant for more than just Max to fly? So it opens up a whole lot of questions about 
is the ship sentient? Maybe it is. Or is Max the one that was calling to David? I mean, I guess we we assume that it was Max, but is Max the ship or is he just the pilot of the ship? And I think because it asks those questions without answering them, that's what makes it really intriguing to me. Yeah, I think it's the outside of the ship as well as the things that you mentioned. All of the things you mentioned would be on my list as well. I love the creatures. They do remind me of like the little Star Wars guys playing chess or whatever. <laughs> but but the Puckerman that he becomes yeah. friends with and keeps in the end and stuff. Those are super adorable and that's a great little section to be added to this. But I think just the sleekness of the ship, the way that it's designed, the fact that it doesn't have an outside appearance to it, or rather there's no like rockets or protruding anything. It's just it's a closed shell essentially that is flying through the air everything about the ship that we get to see is on the inside so from the outside perspective it's just this amazingly zippy little thing Um, i like that and i like the fact that it can go underwater i like the fact that it can go into space and do all of these different things time travel Um, it's just uh, it's very versatile ship (laughs) and uh, and it's so simplistic in its design and there's something about that that kind of serves as a really neat contrast to some of the incredible like decked out fancy spaceships that are also in consideration for my top five. So if you're not a patron, patreon.com slash feeling film, come be a patron for as little as a buck a month. And uh, you can get that episode here in about a week when we drop it with our top five spaceships, or you can wait a few weeks and then you can get it free like the rest of the uh, folks us. that are listeners. But come you know, if you patron. have a buck, we'll take your buck. Be a um, buck. The second half of the movie is more like a road trip, uh, or I guess an air trip, if you would, where David and Max spend the time getting to know each other. We get to learn about Max's history and what the purpose of him taking David was all about. And they get to travel the world, or mostly the U.S., but they do go to Japan briefly. So what are your favorite parts about this section, this trip that they take? And then also, along with that, do you feel like they have become friends by the end of this movie and what is it that makes them friends like how do you bond and become friends patrick in like a 24-hour period i feel like they leave us feeling that feeling and so what do we see that actually gets us to believe that learning from each other i think that seeing how max is asking questions and david's answering them he's the authority in this case the fact that David can mouth off a little bit to Max, like I'm the navigator, the authority, the joking authority, the kind of, look, you need me as much as I need you. The fact that David can talk back to Max and kind of call him out on his mistakes. You crashed while looking at flowers, really? The sophisticated aircraft and that's your excuse. I mean, come on, really? And so I think by the end of the film, what we see are two entities two companions who have learned from each other and it's through that air slash road trip part of the movie that you we get to experience as an audience one of my favorite favorite parts in general i love the fact that they have to stop so david can go to the bathroom i love that the fact that he gets he gets road maps they're traveling by road even though they're flying but they're using the highway as a way to 
get back to Fort Lauderdale. And arguing about who can figure out the quickest route to take. Yeah, right? Yeah. And and I think the the one part that always stands out to me is when David stops, gets out of the ship, so nonchalantly like, oh, this is my car. And the the big dude who is called out like, hey, Tubby, or whatever he calls him, like he just stares at the ship. And of course, it's assumed that the ship is part of this like decorative set piece of the gas station. Like, you know, pretty, you know, this your gas station's okay, but this thing's amazing. And I think it's the nonchalantness of these moments that we get with with David and Max where as he gets through the film, the ship becomes a vehicle. It doesn't become something that he's even interested in figuring out apart from how to fly it. It just becomes the quite literally the vehicle that gets him home. And I think there's something really interesting about that because just like David's curiosity about the ship is super seated by the fact that he wants to get home, that same kind of theme, that same kind of idea is continuously played out where we don't see a lot of the ship. We see the things that we're meant to see for the purpose that they're defined by. So the creatures that eventually David takes one or the sci-fi elements of getting him, you know, getting the stuff out of his brain, only what's necessary. And when you look at those things, you realize that this is really about the relationship between him and Max and those experiences having to go take a leak. He has to explain that to Max because he didn't understand the vernacular uh, getting out to get a candy bar and uh, roadmap. I mean, those little things that make it feel like a road trip movie by normal standards, except you're in this really cool spaceship. Yep. Agreed with all that. I think that the meeting of the different alien species is definitely one of my favorite parts. I like that they have different designs. They're cute little puppet like creatures and it's just adorable. Honestly, I just think it's like a great little touch to not have them necessarily be completely alone, even though those things aren't sentient to the point where they're conversating with the two of them. And then I think that part of what allows them to become great friends, true friends by the end of this is twofold. One is the fact that Max literally copies and knows everything that David has ever experienced. And so (laughs) there is a level of getting to know you that is a bit sped up (laughs) right there at that point. So it's as if he has been a part of uh, David's life for all of it, you know, for all 13 or whatever it is, how many years old he is. And you, you can't really just have that happen in real life. You can't just experience what someone else experienced as they experienced it. And I think having that perspective allows them to then understand that they, they now share that in a sense and allows some of that poking of fun that happens like, oh, you got a D in geography. You know, he would have never known that at that point. And so some of that poking and prodding that wouldn't necessarily happen if you were really just meeting someone in the first 24 hours because you wouldn't have that level of knowledge in order or that ability to speak into someone's life in that way. But because of the mind transfer, they're able to do that. I think it's a combination of that, but it's also context because I think there's something interesting that 
Max blubbers off all this stuff, but I don't think he understands half of what he's saying. Because at the very beginning, when he scans David, he starts repeating half the stuff that we heard in the first half of the movie, which I think is for him, Max, a chance to kind of understand the vernacular, understand the language, understand the way in which David is talked to and the way he talks to others. And I think that's what gives him the opportunity to really ask questions, but ask them in a way that David's related to. And it comes out when he starts going back and forth with David, the way David and Jeff badger each other, calling each other butt face or scuzz bucket. It's played for laughs. But I think a moment like that reflects the fact that Max is trying to learn how to talk to David in a way that David understands. And those, I think, are equally as important as getting that backstory. Because, yes, he has those memories, but if he doesn't have context, if he doesn't understand what does it mean to have a D, what does it mean to take a leak, he's learning, obviously, with an AI kind of brain. And I think that makes him both complex and primitive at the same time because it allows David to feel like, you know what? This guy has some stuff to learn from me too. And I think that's what puts them on equal footing. Whereas he's not just a passenger on this. He really is the navigator. He's the one that needs to get them to where they need to go. Not only get those star charts out of his head, but also get back to Fort Lauderdale, which I think is hilarious, by the way. The fact that, that Max this great sentient being takes them to Japan and he's like, what this is, it's, it's too dark. It's too early to be dark. Oh my gosh. Are you kidding me? And so then <laughs> the only way he knows how follow the road, follow the highway, you know? And, and I think it's great. I think it puts them in a place where they can both rely on one another and to do that in a 24 hour period. And for us in a 90 minute period, less than 90 minutes, cause they don't meet each other until the back half of the film. It's pretty amazing to, to see that play out. I agree. I agree. And I think that the other part of it is just accelerating of that friendship is always going to be, it, it's sort of what you just said at the end there, but it's, it's stakes. And I jokingly or talking earlier about there's not a huge stakes in this movie necessarily life or death is not in the balance, but there is something in the balance for both of them. And there is purpose to their journey. It's not just out on the road, just experiencing the world together. They are going from point A to point B with a purpose and they need each other. They rely on each other. And when you have that sort of relationship, it's going to naturally mean you need to connect with each other quicker than you would in any other scenario in order to achieve your goals that are for both of you, as you were mentioning. So I think that that definitely plays into it as well. So yeah, I think that they're definitely truly best friends, great friends by the end of this. It's very sad when he goes away and I hate it for them. And I wish that they didn't have to separate and be apart. Kind of like the family, right? Like David being disappearing from his family and then being taken away from his family right after he's reunited with his family. How does the depiction of this differ kind of from maybe what we're used to seeing in a story uh, where someone time travels or has to deal with, you know, family issues within a sci-fi context? And do you think that David is making the right decision to risk being vaporized? <laughs> I love when he finds that out, by the way. He's like, uh, what? <laughs> you know, it's like, 
okay, so that's what I'm up against. But is it worth that in order to return to his own time versus just carrying on now? It's almost, I just watched The Matrix, so forgive me, but it's sort of like a red pill, blue pill scenario in that you're having to choose, not, not directly, but you're having to choose one of these things. Do you want to live in the now with all of the complications that come with that? Or do you want to take the risk to get back to what is truth and reality and sort of normal? And I love any story that deals with something like this, with an ethical, not ethical, but like a moral kind of a personal dilemma of sorts that you, you really could go right or wrong either way. You can make arguments. And so do you think that it's the right decision for him to make in this situation? Or do you think he should have just maybe stayed where he was or just ran off with Max and enjoyed the, you know, universe together? First of all, I think it's interesting that this film decides to push the story eight years into the future. What an arbitrary number. I'm used to Back to the Future, 1955, 1985, 30 years, nice round number. You know, it's eight, you know, eight years. What is that? And as an adult who loves sci-fi, I'm looking back, and that's probably a question I have. Why eight years? What what happened there? I can only attribute to the fact that Max messed up and brought him back to the wrong point. It was just a random time. Well, I think it's intentional because it gives you the right amount of time for his brother to have aged up to be exactly at an opposite type of personality trait. So his brother was younger than him and at the age in which he is still being messed with and kind of constantly berated by his older brother. And he Mm -hmm. is able to age up to 16 or 17 years old to where he's got enough ability to be mature to completely change the relationship dynamic. Because one of the things I love about this movie is the way that Jeff doesn't, hold a grudge he doesn't treat him like crap dude so many movies would treat that relationship as an incredible point of drama and conflict because he'd be like you used to beat up on me when i was a kid and now i get to beat up on you because i'm older than you no jeff from the moment he meets david and gets to see him again is right there in his corner like he is his best friend he is his brother and he is going to do everything he can to take care of him and help him. It's one of my favorite scenes in the movie. Almost my connecting point was memorable for me. It's when they, when he runs up to like set off the fireworks on top of the roof. I just love the idea behind that and the way in which he is secretly helping him get around the NASA security and like bring him home. So for me, I think that the eight years is specific to creating that relationship in a way that we can resonate and we can relate to those of us who may or may may have siblings. Yeah, that, that makes sense to me. It wasn't a bother by any means. It was just kind of a question of curiosity because it seemed you know, eight instead of 10 or something like that. I think that the jump forward in time is something that was unique for 1986, especially when you don't age. And it really posed a lot of questions. And so I thought from that standpoint, what it did was exactly what you said. It created this new dynamic where he has this new family. It's a family that loves him. But they're quite literally in a different house. His parents have clearly aged, which I don't know that I love the makeup job of them. I, I think I do, but I feel like they're I do. I feel like they're a little too old for eight years because they looked really young in the beginning of the film. 
not a problem by any means, just something I noticed this time around. But I think that the tension between him and them, not like bad, like he doesn't like them, but that awkwardness of how having to reacquaint himself to this, really this brand new family where all he has are memories from three hours ago, but are really eight years ago to these guys. I can only imagine what the dinner conversations would be if he stayed, where they'd be laughing about an event that happened five years ago that he wasn't around for. Almost like being in a coma and missing out on some significant events, I'm pretty sure he would have a huge amount of depression and having missed out on that stuff. And you know, we don't see a lot about his relationships with friends, so that's not really an issue. But I think that that helps inform him of the risk that he decides to take and saying, look, I've got to go back. And I think those are a couple of the reasons why he does that is that it's not that he doesn't love those people. It's just that he says, it's not my home. And for him and for us as human beings, the memory of who we are and who we were of our life, knowing that there's that big of a gap that's being missed it feels like we've lost something. And for him, I think the risk far outweighed, the reward far outweighed the risk in that if he did get vaporized, it would be as if he died, which is kind of like where he is at this point because he's almost a new kid starting over with a new family whose memories all he has are so far in the past that they almost seem fake in some ways. So I think he... I would say short answer is that I think he made the right decision. And I won't say if it was me, but maybe if it was, it would still be a difficult choice, but I would probably make that decision because I value that connectivity and that gap may have may be too much for me. I think that early on establishing that this is a strong family is part of what allows it to work so well in the end because we aren't rooting for David to get away from an awful life. We're rooting for David to get back to an amazing life <laughs> where he has a loving family and a brother and, you know, uh, uh, all of these things in which were quote unquote normal. And before this great pain that they've experienced over the eight years came before and so I love the way that the family is depicted in this, as I mentioned, because I just don't like all of these stories that create drama in this regard where something has to be wrong. Like he had to have somebody was worth escaping. No, it's all worth getting back to. That's why he takes the risk, because it's familiarity. It's safety. It's where home is. And I think. That combined with the real fear of what he specifically calls out, I'm going to spend my entire life being studied. I'm never going to be normal. There's nothing about the rest of my life. He's got incredible foresight for like a 12 year old or whatever he is, but like to be able to understand that 70 years of being the other maybe is worth the risk to go back and have 78 years of being normal and just growing up with his family and the loving, you know, situation that he had. And so I, I definitely 
agree, and I think that the risk is worth it for him by far. I don't. I really don't think that there's a question um, here, even beyond just the movie reasons of you know dramatic tension and such. It makes perfect sense, and you can see the toll it took on his family. I think that's where the makeup doesn't have any problem, or I guess that's where I don't have a problem with the makeup. Is it, it is a good depiction of just how much they have lost in his absence, and and Jeff agree. mentions that too. He said, "You know, I used to put these pictures up." Every Saturday, mom made me put them up all throughout town for years when you were missing. The movie does such a great job of like subtly telling you how important he was to his family and and what it did to them. They had to move out of their house. They had to get somewhere else. They had to get away, try and start over, right? And David wants to put it all back to where it was at the beginning, even at the risk of death. I think it's a very mature decision in a lot of ways, honestly. Um, and so I, I think it's great. Well, like many 80s sci-fi films, there have been rumblings of a remake of this at times. It has come up. So I want to ask you this question to kind of wrap up before we hit our connecting points. Which would you prefer and why? A remake, a sequel, or neither? I would like to see this done as a remake. And I, and as a sequel, I just, oh, you're making this hard for me because there's reasons for both. The reason for a remake is I would love to see what today's special effects could do with the simple story. Don't change the story. Just give us an updated version of the story. Don't create extra drama. Don't give us a two hour movie when an hour and a half will do. If we were to create a sequel, I would love to see Max come back. David is an adult and something has happened on Phalon and there was a bit of extra information in his brain that could help solve it. Maybe he gets a call, like a mental brain call or something. And all of a sudden he has to go back. Don't know if his little creature is still alive <laughs> at this point. I would assume he is because alien creatures should live forever, but I could see both working. What I wouldn't want to see Aaron is an amplification of this story like i would want to see something pretty simple if it were a sequel just a simple adventure story now would that fly in 2020 i don't know because i think we want more from our movies than just that and sometimes all we need is a simple 90 minute tale the fact that it's disney i think would give it some forgiveness if it's even animated i think that might give it a little bit more weight but for me if i had to pick between the two i'd like to see a remake yeah, I think that I would prefer a sequel. I think that seeing him visited again by Max when he's like 20 years old or something would be really interesting. And especially if it's Max needing some sort of specific navigating ability from David that he can't get by himself or can't accomplish something. I think it would be interesting. It's probably too late to have Carolyn McAdams, Sarah Jessica Parker back as a love interest, of course. Um, that would be cool. But I agree with you. Saving Phelan would be the place I would probably assume this would go. And I think that 
it, it would be really important for me not to remake it. I think I don't think it would work. I just don't believe that the world is in the place where the sensibility would ever be the same. No matter how cool the special effects, I think that they would take over. And that's one of the really neat things about this movie is that it's not got special effects that dominate your feelings about the movie solely. But I think that it would be if somebody tried to remake it. And so I would want to see kind of the technical wizardry of how what it could do with Max and the ship. But I don't want to see it remade. I just want to see it kind of added on to. Also, because... I think that if it bombs, if it fails, like something like an ID4, then it doesn't take away from my love of the original. I don't have to relate it to that in any way, shape, or form. I can just be like, oh, well, that was a cool attempt, and it sucked. And if not, it can be like Tron Legacy and be like, as an awesome addition to this franchise that I already loved. And it's just, to me, it's like a a much higher chance of success um, with less chance of ruining or harming my (laughs) preference for something I already loved. Okay. Well, connecting point time. Uh, I will let you go first. Did you have a connecting point? I should actually, I guess, ask in this case. Uh, (laughs) And if so, what was that? Yeah, I did. And I I alluded to it. It's the, it's the moment that David makes the choice to leave his, I call now family for his then family. (laughs) And what stood out to me was, I mentioned a lot of it before, but the thing that really connected me to David is his facial expression when he essentially says, I'm sorry, I have to go. Because in that moment, you realize that he does love that family. And the fact that he admits that is my family. He doesn't say, "Uh, they don't love me. That's my future family. I don't like them and I'm really feeling uncomfortable. No, I think he's admitting that he's out of place, that he's thrown out of time to an extent where he could make it work, but he would rather try to get back to where he's supposed to be and take the risk of getting vaporized. It reminded me of an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation, obviously sci-fi, whatever, that doesn't play the same story, but it sort of ask the same question. Are you okay living in a different time than what you're meant to? Or do you take the risk and go back to your own time? What's not just familiar to you, but what's appropriate to you. But I think seeing how he reacted to it makes me feel empathetic, not only for him, because he's losing some, he's risking losing both families in this case, but also looking back on them and going, they're going to have a memory. If we go to the Back to the Future route, they're going to have a memory of that spaceship leaving and either David being right next to them as a 20-year-old or wherever he is, or a memory of him never coming back. And wow, that's risky because he's now putting their lives and their emotional state at risk by making that choice. It's still his choice. There's no doubting that but at the same time watching this i realized wow he's affecting their lives too because they lost a son they found him and now they're potentially losing him again because if we play the back to the future card if he does survive 
then all of a sudden these memories that they have of him being gone are now moot because he's now come back unless something crazy happens in those new eight years or whatever we're going to call it. I don't want to get too far into that sci-fi. <laughs> that to say, watching this play out, I love seeing how he reacted to it and how it wasn't just a stoic, selfish, I'm going to get back to my family. He really did weigh those choices and getting back into the ship, man, it was just, uh, yeah, that was my thinking point. Awesome. Well, this is an interesting one for me because it's <laughs> a movie that I adore and is an all-time favorite. And yet it's not a movie that I can point to necessarily one specific emotional connecting point like I can in so many of the movies that we cover. And so I have to say that for me, it's the sequence with the music drop. There's great music throughout this, by the way. I'll say before I even get to this, the film uses Twisted Sister. Obviously, it has to do that because there's a name drop by Sarah Jessica Parker. Um, and then there's a couple other bands that are played throughout. There is an underrated score by Alan Silvestri, in my opinion. The theme for this in particular is fantastic. And so there's good. one really great piece of music I actually texted you about. I did a Shazam on it while it was playing because I was like, oh, man, this is so cool. It was when we were intensely escaping via Ralph. <laughs> that, that robot's name is Ralph, R-A-L-F, to get to Max's ship. And it came up and it's called Robot Romp. <laughs> And I was like, this is awesome. What a great name for a piece of music. Anyway, that's a great track. The whole soundtrack score, rather, is awesome. But then the soundtrack happens. And it's the use of Beach Boys' I Get Around. They're in California. And so it makes sense with where it comes up. They're, Max is learning about the radio and what songs are and music is. And it's just the single most memorable piece of this film for me as a child is David in the seat fully understanding how to fly the ship at this point and just jamming out with no cares in the world enjoying the piece of sci-fi machinery and his friend the new friend the robot alien and just going at it like they're just in a state of bliss and the film captured that in the essence of this one single music sequence. And I think it's perfect. I think it's what you need at that moment. It's before we drop down to a little bit more of the drama of the fact that now David is going home and both we want him as an audience to get home. And yet we also don't want to see him separated from Max. And so we're being pulled in different emotional directions. It's that perfect, like friendship Everything has kind of built to this point where they get to be together and enjoy each other without a lack of understanding and without fear for a few minutes. And so it's, it's just beautiful and it's so much fun. And it is so iconic for me that when I hear the song, I get around on the radio, I view and have the images from Fly the Navigator coming into my head. And so for me, like that is the essence in a lot of ways of a connecting point as well. Because it's quite literally connecting me visually in my memory to the movie. And so that is the one that I had to go with. I love it. And if for no other reason than because I love the Beach Boys. So good stuff, man. Well, that wraps up this episode of Feelin' Film. And with this being Christmas week, we wanted to wish you all a good one. Hoping that you get a chance to celebrate with someone and also that you are keeping yourself safe. 
Christmas is on Thursday this year, and with it, the debut of Wonder Woman 1984, followed up by our thoughts a few days later. I promise I will not do that on the episode coming up next week. Maybe. Depends on how Christmas goes. If I feel good, I'm going to, whatever. Anyway, in addition, we'll also be bringing you our December donor pick next week, Anna and the Apocalypse, along with the previously mentioned bonus content on our favorite movie spaceships. Aaron, thanks for another great conversation, and we'll talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at FeelinFilm, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling film.